Hello, and welcome back to Hero with a Thousand Potions, a gaming podcast where two game likers in their 30s discuss the storytelling and gameplay of popular and niche RPGs in a book club like format. I'm Tyler. And I'm a whiny crybaby on YouTube. It's season two. We're covering Final Fantasy VII Remake and its parallel content in the original game released back in 1997. Today is chapter 13, where we go through the aftermath of the plate fall. The Sector 7 plate fell and crushed the Sector 7 slums, and we're here to pick up the pieces. Nate, how are we feeling tonight? I'm doing pretty good, uh, as my little fun tag hinted i got a couple videos on youtube that have been popping off on the subject of world of warcraft and the reason is i clickbaited people oh no gasps sigh you did not it's funny because i have a video where like there's dozens and dozens of comments of people like raging at me and they're laying out this like multi-layered case of why they're right and it's like you just repeated verbatim the points I made in my video, you clearly didn't watch it. And I, I had to like pin a comment at the top where it says, please watch 10 seconds of the video starting at the point where I talk at the topic one minute in just watch 10 seconds where I say, I like and support this feature. <laughs> they didn't even make it to that point yet. They're writing paragraphs at me. I've got like a dozen comments that youtube has held for review because they contain like vicious insults or threats to me so <laughs> I, I i'm like blown away at the level of like stupidity that happens <laughs> like think about this if you found somebody you, you felt like you might disagree with on youtube based on a, a a thumbnail that is a little bit of a spicy take in the thumbnail right wouldn't you watch a little bit of the video so that you can adequately counteract the point being made? Like you're saying, hmm, okay, he said this and this. I can debunk that argument. They don't even go that far. They just light right in of insulting me and calling me a, a whiny crybaby who needs to just log out and stop playing the game. So, uh, yeah, it's been fun. And uninstall. Uninstall. <laughs> Don't forget to uninstall. Uh, but yeah, that's been my weekend. I mean, besides the normal stuff of normal life, like that's the, the nice little cherry on top. That's been my last week of videos popping off. Nice, Nate. Uh, in my case, I've been playing lots and lots of Chained Echoes. You bought that for me for Christmas last year. I gave you a, a playful little insult, and then I ducked behind the cover of uh, a giant Crisis Core uh, box of games that have been bought and not played <laughs> yeah i played it for an hour and then i put it down but then over thanksgiving weekend i had a four-day weekend there i played it for about five hours a day or three days then another few hours on the last day on sunday and uh it's great man i mean if you're like us you probably like games like chrono trigger final fantasy 6 xenogears soikoden 1 and 2 and it's all in there chained echoes is uh, you've got the ensemble cast, you've got mech suits, you've got, uh, when I say Soikoden, it's got the personnel building, you've got a f offshore fortress and you're building it up with a variety of allies that are not playable characters that do little things for you that improve your gameplay. That's awesome. Battle is pretty interesting. 
plot's pretty good. The environments are riveting. There's an achievement system that unlocks progression. So like, so like doing like micro achievements is part of leveling up. There's no leveling. You upgrade abilities, and you create a create a build for each of your characters, and then as you uh, unlock this achievement grid that looks kind of like the license board on Final Fantasy XII. It unlocks other other types of um, power progression as well, and so it all comes together in this really great experience that I'm just I'm deeply immersed in right now. It's a very good game. I'm. It's a shame that I dropped it for eleven months, mm. but I'm I'm absolutely going to finish it now. I'm I'm uh, at the beginning of Act Two, and it's it's a pretty riveting experience. I'm really really into it. Should we get into content, Nate? Yeah, sure. As far as remake, the chapter begins with Tifa waking up to Cloud staring at her. <laughs> it's not creepy. The way I describe it, it's creepy, but it's not that creepy. He's staring at her. I mean, God knows if everyone's okay after all of that catastrophe, right? Mm -hmm. The fall of the Sector 7 plate has created a lot of collateral damage in Sector 6, and we're kind of buried underneath a mountain of wreckage in the margin of Sector 6, which we're in right now. They share a couple words, and then they catch up to Barrett, who's screaming at that mountain of broken concrete that separates him from the annihilated Sector 7 slums, and then he's punching the concrete too. I was kind of hoping that he would be uh, shooting his gun arm at the concrete wall like he was an original, but I guess that's not very realistic in the re remakiness of this scene. I think in the original, it came off more as an expression of anger than it is like he's going to actually break through the barrier in any way. That's how I read it as a kid. It's just firing at it because you realize there's nothing you can do and you're just filled with rage. That's true. And I feel the same way too for both games. Like I didn't think in original that he was actually trying to like carve up tunnel through to the sector but we learned in remake he actually could do that if he wanted I was just to gonna mention that yeah <laughs> which is another reason why it's funny that you mention it when the equivalent scene begins in original we fade to black from the playground and we're all already together at the playground we're not there at the playground just yet in remake we catch up to barrett who's already at the playground barrett punches and shoots at the tower of rubble and so they're both punching it at least, like effort, like not effortlessly, but with despair. The horror of it all, the aftermath of the calamity. He hollers, he says things like, what's it all for? Money! Biggs! Witch! Jesse! As they're kind of breaking down everything that's happened here, obviously it's tragic to Cloud and he's concerned, but we already see him. He's like on his way to Aerith's house. Oh yeah. He fucks off right away. I'm bringing this up because of the difference between remake and original and where I see cloud's character at. I don't know that cloud is as invested as, or, or OG cloud is as invested in avalanche and the people and the team as he is in remake in OG. And I think he's just, I don't want to use the word smitten. I don't know that it's a love thing or whatever, but I think the connection and the bond he forged with Aerith, like as sparse and simple as it was in OG, was the primary thing on his mind. Or maybe the fact like, because Ancient was mentioned at the tower. Yeah, I was going to mention that. It plants a seed he, in his brain that he can't. Yeah. yeah. He, 
he's he's like a plotting right now um <laughs> you know um so i'm sure on some level he is like affected and concerned but this is a guy who's like entire mo is repressing things so we can kind of figure it out so i think this is another thing that he's just kind of like compartmentalizing that it happened mm-hmm. in the last chapter we had a lot of emotional scenes with dying people and i think that once you've dealt with all of those dying people like as in killed them or made their fate undetermined it necessarily follows that you have to have the head scratching like like what happened to them too we have to have that in original excuse me we have to have that in remake but we don't need to have that so much in original because those death scenes and those emotional connections were not were not were not forged so impactfully yeah there wasn't really the same level of closure with each death i mean you, you saw wedge fall off the tower you talk to biggs he's hanging over a railing you say something to jesse but like there isn't this idea that the plate is going to fall everyone is going to die there's nothing we can do about it in og so there isn't really a moment of like it was good knowing you buddy you know it's just like go get up there right yeah so there there's no closure on their deaths Mm -hmm. before cloud leaves the scene the tragedy has already galvanized barrett into taking revenge on shinra uh he's ready now in original but in remake it takes a couple more scenes for him to come around we stew in this misery for a lot longer or i should say barrett does and we'll talk more about that as we get into other scenes. So in Remake, Cloud says Aerith said she rescued Marlene in time, but we don't know where. And our best guess is Aerith's house in the Sector 5 slums. Barrett is becoming unglued in the scene. He's in a panic and is saying things like, tell me she's all right, even if she's not, I won't blame you for it. And then, oh, hell, I'd probably smash your face in if you were lying to me or something like that. And uh, it, it's just an expression of him another side of Barrett, the vulnerable side, because uh, didn't take care of Marlene to the extent that maybe he should have. Yeah, I think what's happening here is we're seeing Barrett is growing more honest with himself and with Cloud uh, because, you know, he's he's got that big Southern preacher attitude I've talked about in the past. And especially somebody is like, if he's going to showboat with anybody, Cloud's going to be one of those people. We've seen it melt away a little bit, like when uh, he had to, when Jesse was hurt and he had to go to cloud for additional help there, there was a little bit of that onion peeling away and barely be all right. Seriously though, dude, I kind of need your help, you know? Um, but, uh, he's, he's even growing honest with himself where he says, who am I kidding? I'd probably tear your head off. If you, if you lied to me about something like that, or like gave me false hope. And so, uh, he's not grandstanding. He started grandstanding a little bit and then he's just like, you know, you know what? No, I'm, this is the way it is. And um, I think what's going on here, I don't know. They don't really, with like you said, with him and OG kind of immediately being like, I'm going to go blow up Shinra, you know, or whatever. Like they, they don't give him time to really stew in the fact of like, this is his first actual defeat since uh, Coral. And because we're okay. Spoiling OG, we, we kind of all know what that means. He's, gotten away with everything he's done without repercussions up to this point like Hmm. he's he's bombed reactors he's been caught like like shinra straight up knew you were coming and he still got away with it and the, the place got blown to hell and you know so like 
he hasn't received his slap on the hand yet. And so this is kind of the first time where like, even in OG, he's like smashing the, the rubble. What, what the hell is it all for? You know, and it's like how long I, I talked about this in the pillar chapter. I'm not sure if it was two episodes or one episode ago, but it's like you were on enemy turf. You are a ragtag group of nobodies against an entire military like from in star wars terms you know they're obviously the rebels they're they like they would need a precise surgical strike to affect any change because they don't have a competing planetary weapon system to to take it to them you know Mm -hmm. so so barrett has he's lucked out with like two or three of these precise surgical strikes and in og it was just kind of like I said, he lucked out, but in remake, we've kind of, they've recrafted this narrative to, they've been stringing you along the entire time. You dumbass. Like, I don't know that Barrett has any legitimate victories in remake. And I would hope that he understands that now at this point, it, it, we kind of talked about him like getting baited to the tower and then them doing the false flag thing of like, hey, avalanche, you will not destroy the pillar and everything. So it's like, after being played so many times, Barrett, like, are you ready to admit <laughs> that you are the cause of all of these? Like, Shinra is the one pulling the trigger, but y- you are their, like, useful idiot in these. There's got to be a different way to go about this, Barrett. You can't keep doing this. Is a, at least my take that he's coming to this realization in Remake, right? Makes you wonder what Avalanche's successes are prior to the events of the game either game well we do know there are those other factions and they they kind of deem barrett as we heard that in the chapter where we went topside wasn't it that barrett was the one that was too zealous too militant yes that's right maybe the other factions engage in a little bit more of like a detente of we're gonna we're gonna do our little operations here and there but we don't kick the hornet's nest too hard not the way barrett does hmm Mm-hmm. As they walk, Cloud asks Tifa and uh, Barrett about the ancients. Barrett says they come up in planetology books. They are the original stewards of the planet and can commune with it too. Meant to be the original stewards of the planet. Could even commune with it, talk to it and stuff. That must be why the Turks wanted her so badly. In OG Final Fantasy VII, we know that Cosmo Canyon is the birthplace of Avalanche. And you'd say... If we were to do like a short little assessment of what is Cosmo Canyon, would you say that's like a spiritual, cultural settlement of like, I don't know if they're nomadic, but they're definitely more sage-like or earthly people than the rest of the world? There is no question they are probably the, (laughs) there's no question they probably, that's funny, uh, absolutes matched with hedging. Um, it's pretty damn certain that they are one of the more spiritually aligned, planetology aligned uh, communities on the planet. And so I, I didn't know that that's where Avalanche uh, was started. I assumed it was uh, Wutai splintering off of the military. Yeah, I think there's a dialogue somewhere in OG. They're around like a campfire or something and Barrett's kind of questioning his his journey and everything that's got him to that point like we've talked about how the squishing is happening in remake he, he has some mm-hmm. of these questions about himself already but i think it's that when we get out to the main world in og that he he's looking at the 
the culture of a place like Cosmo Canyon and being like, this is where Avalanche is actually from. And boy, is the lifestyle out here different than Midgar. So I wonder if it, where and how he was recruited because, you know, Bear's not from Midgar and Corel, the town he's from, a lot more, a, a closer vicinity to Cosmo Canyon than Midgar. Like we're talking an ocean yeah. and a continent away. So I wonder if in his destruction of his homeland and his rage and everything he stumbled upon avalanche there first and being the zealot he is he's like i'm gonna go straight to him i'm gonna go straight to midgar and fuck him up whereas uh as we've talked about other members uh have maybe a different way of handling things and then cloud suffers a headache and we hear like the the ringing I think, and then Sephiroth appears. No surprises there, right? Mm-hmm. The static screen filter. We hear Sephiroth say, within my veins flows the blood of the ancients. Within my veins flows the blood of ancients. This planet is my birthright. I think this sentence is an actual memory, not one of those Sephiroth manifestation mind fucks. Because I'm pretty sure that this sentence is spoken from Sephiroth to Cloud in the Shinra Mansion in the flashbacks that you see of the Shinra Mansion in original. Is that right? Via your own notes, Tyler, this dialogue happens here in OG as well. Yes, that's true. It is almost word for word the same in OG. Because we're we're leaving the, the wreckage site and Cloud also has... Uh, less static and more of like the whirling winds noise and the screen fading to white. Cloud has a little bit of a memory flash there as he's kind of contemplating ancient shit. (laughs) You're right in that I think part of this remake Sephiroth intrusion is a memory because it, it lines up with what we got in OG at this exact spot. In original, we don't see Sephiroth, but in remake, we do. And then, after the memory of him, he appears, or, or at least he appears to Cloud. Um, the camera kind of pulls back to see uh, Cloud kind of looking alone by himself, but like reacting to Sephiroth, and Tifa notices. And so Tifa notices Cloud, but doesn't see Sephiroth. And so that's demonstrating to us through cinematography that it's in his head. And Sephiroth speaks to him. He says... You have failed again, I see, but through suffering, you will grow strong. And he puts a hand on Cloud's shoulder and says, Isn't that what you want? You have failed again, I see. (laughs) But through suffering, you will grow strong. Isn't that what you want? And then walks past him, and then he disappears. In original, we don't get that. What did Cloud fail, do you think? Helping his friends. He failed Jesse and Biggs and Wedge. Mm, I wonder. Because, yes, they the whole team just experienced a episode of failure. But Sephiroth has been prodding throughout the game. For Remember when we saw him in the alleyway? He said, run away, Cloud. Get your dumb ass out of here. The planet <laughs> needs you to stop to to just leave to stop doing what you're doing right now Hmm. so yes cloud failed to save his friends there's also a different way of looking at it of cloud is still stuck on the the train tracks so to speak 
he hasn't done as Sephiroth previously commanded to him to, right? Mm-hmm. He's still doing exactly what he's quote unquote supposed to. In my head, that's the failure I think Sephiroth is talking about is because that would be his primary concern. Sephiroth doesn't care about Cloud's friends. Sephiroth is showing up saying, I need you to do something. Please do it. <laughs> Leave like I told you to. Yes. Get off this path. No specifics, though, of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll elaborate. I do think, uh, you know, you mentioned the cin- cinematography and everything. I do think there are two completely separate things happening here just to kind of break it down. When we hear those lines that are echoed in OG as well, uh, remake makes a point to kind of bathe Sephiroth in white light. And also the vision of Sephiroth himself is cloaked in that same static. And it's like, it's blurring, it's vague. You, you don't know where he's standing or where he is in this moment. It's kind of like the way we process our memories. We don't have the whole picture where we're drawn to faces and shapes and like the, the general feeling of something. And then... All of the new dialogue is him literally standing right in front of us, lit by the same slum lights we're lit by. Like you said, he feels completely present right next to us, even though Tifa can't see him and Cloud can. So all of the OG dialogue is through what I would call this memory static. And all of the new dialogue is him physically present here with us. So just to kind of break that down on, them kind of being on two separate wavelengths, at least from what I was perceiving. Yeah, I agree with that. In original, after the headache moment, Tifa sees Cloud real, but Cloud doesn't give any hints as to what's happening. But in remake, Cloud does say, it's nothing, let's go. This is where we would get uh, Ryan scolding Shulk for not talking about his visions for the (laughs) 70th time and a big emotional moment of, you've got to tell me. And Shulk says, okay, I promise. And then 10 minutes later, oh, it's nothing. Don't worry. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely right. Okay, so uh, we're headed over to the Sector 5 slums. Uh, We pass by Wall Market on the way there, and the tone is shifted as we go. It feels much more quiet. Everyone's grappling with the horror, the aftermath of what's going on. There isn't mass chaos. It's just we feel stunned more than crazy. One thing I found interesting as you're walking through a majority of these areas, everybody's all turned in one direction. And if you pan that camera up and look at the sky, yep, there's a missing plate. They're all like stunned that they can see the sky finally. Um, Mm. And obviously they're stunned by the act of what happened too but it's like people aren't really rushing to get there to like see it firsthand it's kind of that thing where like a car accident happens and all your neighbors are standing outside in their bathrobe of like it's like it happened to me i was here when it happened you know Mm -hmm. i i heard a noise and that makes me involved in some way and it's like they're all just kind of stunned looking at this hole in the well, not a hole in the sky, but a hole in the city. And it, it's interesting because you'll notice you'll be running through these areas and everybody's just looking in one direction. And every time you pan up your camera in the direction the NPCs are looking, oh, yeah, right. There's a they they completely change the sky box. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. You're not able to look up into the sky in original because these are pre-rendered backgrounds mm-hmm. and there's no chance to pan up. But... 
you can check out Wall Market to shop if you like on your way to Aerith's house. On the way there, in Remake, uh, Tifa informs Barrett that when we last saw Biggs and Jesse, they were in pretty bad shape, and I think we're leading to the conclusion, without saying it, that they're probably goners, but Wedge got out. Now, recall that uh, when we last saw Wedge, he was about to be crushed by falling debris from the exploding pillar while dusty ghosts circled him, and so we don't really know what his fate is in this moment it's a little mysterious to us because well the dusty ghosts seem to be able to trifle with whatever they want to in this game i feel like talking about the sector five slums and original before heading over to uh to remake all right firstly you can visit the church that you first met Aerith in. there are two children playing in here who want to care for that little uh patch of flowers that she was tending to when we first uh, crashed into it, I guess. And they ask Cloud permission if it's okay that they look after the flowers. And I say, okay. I don't know if that earns us Aerith points or what, but it seems like a pretty sensible answer to me. Saying no doesn't seem very Cloud-like to me. It seems he's very, uh, you know, sure, yeah, okay. Well, I'm not responsible for it. What are you asking me for? The NPCs are pretty weary about what's going on in Originals sector five slums they are stunned and shocked and um i talked with the npcs and and they have different things they have to say but none of them are particularly noteworthy with the exception of uh two folks in the same house actually so recall that there was that boy in original that you gave a couple gil to or not earlier in the game uh for a little secret that he had or something like that well he's got a turbo ether for you if you talk to him again I think you got that backwards. I'm going to correct you on that. Hmm. The boy said he had a big secret he was keeping. And if you poked around his house, you could find Gil hidden underneath the drawer oh, of his dresser. Okay. So you have a mm-hmm. choice whether to take it or not to take it. If you didn't take it, he says he bought something nice with his money and then <laughs> gives it to you. And it's a turbo ether. So uh, apparently he just he wanted to participate in commerce more than he actually wanted what he was purchasing thank you for the correction so he's in the upper level of that house and in the lower level is a man watching uh, a tv shinra state news of course and on the tv uh, it's broadcasting saying that the platefall was the worst calamity that has ever befallen the city although thanks to shinra efforts there were zero casualties (laughs) so that's a lie (laughs) So that's a lie, and they also blame Avalanche for the problem. We know it's a lie, Tyler, because in the the, the pre-rendered cutscene of the plate falling, we saw a newsman die live on TV. <laughs> so it, somewhere out there, there's some... I mean, this is the area of VCR and recording everything. There's some weird, like, anti-government weirdo who's recording every broadcast who... He's he's got his tinfoil hat on and he's gonna like try and get that tape of the man dying during the newscast mm. out to the media and uh, as he gets to the door somebody's just gonna brush against him lightly and he's gonna fall to his knees and have a heart attack and he'll just die there in the middle of the street and no one will know why or how someone cast poison on him <laughs> yeah a soldier third class 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the guy watching the NPC is the only NPC in the slums that also blames Avalanche. So this is propaganda in action. He says, I don't care if they're Avalanche or Avant-Garde or whatever. They're doing one of those riffs where I don't like if it's, I don't care if it's uh, Fox News or Schmocks News. It's Avalanche or Avant-Garde. It's not a very good joke, in my opinion, in the script. And then he says, anyone who'd bring the plates down on us is nuts. And I think we can all agree with that. And if you check the broadcast again after going to, well, I mean, I don't know if it's immediately after, but I checked it again after going to Earth's house. Uh, it says something different. It says, citizens unite, come to the light, Mako energy. Power is truth, capital T, truth. Shinra is the future. Real happiness can be found in obedience to the company. Propaganda is much more on the nose this time. <laughs> you almost wonder if there's like a swirling graphic or, or a strange flicker of like, oh, sure. yeah, yeah. Mako is the truth. Listen to the corporation. You know, I don't see it in your notes for a remake, but there's also a broadcast and remake. Did you, should we touch on that quickly here? Oh, I might've missed that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, please touch on that. It's interesting because they were running the false flag op of Reno doing stop your shenanigans avalanche, right? But Mm -hmm. in the broadcast, the news actually bases, it's still avalanche's fault, but they attribute the plate fall to uh, like structural instability caused by the bombings of macro reactors one and five that um, Mm. have weakened the integrity. And they say that there are rescue efforts happening and also like public development is going to be, making sure that uh, all the other plates are secure and that this doesn't happen again. So again, same kind of propaganda thing, trust the company we're on it. Right. But it wasn't necessarily that they weren't leaning into the avalanche bombed the plate. (laughs) They were going with like, it's an unintended consequence of the havoc they're wreaking out on the city. And you could kind of believe it based on our chapter two experience of like infrastructure, the reactor blew, but then we're seeing expressways collapsing. We're seeing buildings falling apart around us and weaving in between wreckage. Mm-hmm. So for Shinra to weave that narrative, not unheard of based on people's on the ground experience of what a reactor spl- explosion could do to infrastructure. It is a little more plausible, or at least it's the, the reasoning is a little more complex in a real world sort of way. No one would believe that nobody died or was a, a casualty. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know that they made that point in and uh remake, but yeah. Yeah, that that's my point. Yeah. I'll I'll highlight one NPC in uh OG that you might have missed or you've have deemed not interesting. Ha. Huh. When you first meet them, they're like, I was walking around the other day and I found I don't know, a gill or something. I found it on the ground. Now I'm I'm going everywhere, looking down, seeing what I can find. <laughs> like their head is pointed towards the ground. And then now if you go talk to them, they're like, the plate fell from the sky. I've been going everywhere with my head looking at the ground. I need to be looking up in case anything falls on me. And it's just like, it was for me, my first like experience of a video game where like people's statuses or states change based on what's happening around them. And it's such a like stupid line, but I, it just stuck in my brain of like, Oh, everyone here knows what happened, you know? Cause it's kind of one of the first people you talk to when you get into town. And so 
this idea that characters and I don't know that I multi-clicked characters back then, you know, because we now know you can talk to characters three or four times and they'll have different stuff to say. Mm -hmm. But in my head, you talk to one person. The one thing they say is the only thing they're ever going to say to you back when I first played the game until meeting this person. I was like, oh. Oh, wait, do I need to go talk to everybody again to see if they have something else? Funny thing, when we do get to Aerith's house, Barrett races in front of them, throws open the door, and screams in the face of the first person he sees about where Marlene might be. Now, this reminds me of, I think it was chapter 8, when Cloud lets himself into Aerith's house first, without knowing anybody who else who <laughs> lives there. Like, he's a stranger to this place, but he let us, lets himself in first before Aerith. The person who lives there invites him in. Well, it's happening again with Barrett. This is a silly little uh, aside there. And he checks himself, realizes that maybe Elmira shouldn't be treated quite so gruffly, and then he asks more gently. And then Elmira says she's sleeping upstairs. Uh, Barrett immediately confirms that she's there, and everything feels much more relaxed. Can you imagine a dude with a gun grafted onto his arm? A huge hulking man <laughs> runs into your house screaming at the top of his lungs. Where's Marlene? <laughs> uh, and just like living in the slums is wild that she's not like cowering in fear in the corner of her kitchen. She's been visited by Song a couple times that we can confirm and he treats her a little more respectfully. She might be like. Mm -hmm. Oh my god, this is so avalanche treat the common people. Yeah. She's she's probably <laughs> anti avalanche Well, she can't be if she's, you know, trying to protect Aerith, but he's not re representing his uh posse very well. And, and there's this funny situation of it of like you said Barrett races ahead. So you as a player, you're still catching up to the house. You can see into the house. You can see for like a good 6 7 seconds. Barrett just standing in the doorway and Elmira sitting at the table with nothing happening. So in my head, I'm thinking he's talking to her. He's conversing. As soon as you throw the <laughs> door open, he's screaming at her and she like juts backwards. So it's like, did you not notice the, the giant behemoth in your <laughs> dining area <laughs> until now? Mm -hmm. But I, it's just, it's one of those video game moments. Um, I think what they should have done is you put Barrett in the entryway. He raced ahead. He's looking around. You have his model like shifting left and right, looking around or like pacing or something. When you throw the door open, Elmira's racing down the stairway, hopefully with a gun in her hand, uh, because otherwise I worry for her safety living in the slums. Um, but that's how I would handle that setup instead of, him just standing there staring at her, waiting to scream until I enter. Absolutely. In Remake, once we see that Marlene is all good, we have a conversation with Elmira. She says that Aerith is in Shinra's hands now. And we know that, but how does she know that? Sung met Aerith at the bar, escorted her to the house. So I'm guessing she would have, in um, passing, heard a chopper or got a glimpse of Sung. She knows, we'll figure out that she knows who Sung is. Um, probably pretty familiar with the, the suit in general, probably has seen them poking around, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah well, the part of the deal was dropping off Marlene. Yes. So, and I, and like we talked about in previous episode, I think that's also the case for OG as well, that Aerith made some sort of deal with him yeah, to get there. Yeah. Cause she wouldn't have been able to traverse two sectors in the time it took cloud to walk up five catwalks right that makes sense 
That makes sense. Cloud says we know that she's an ancient, and Elmira confirms it, and then... Yes. Aerith is an ancient. Probably the last one living. And then we get into a rather long-form story about Aerith's past. And the two conversations in remake and original are pretty similar, but there's more detail and it's just a little more fleshed out in remake. So we'll, we'll start with remake and we'll circle back to original. Elmira says that Aerith is not her daughter and then says that her husband was shipped off to fight on the front lines. We can assume probably Wutai and he had plans to return home for a little while, but he never showed up. And so she waited at the train station day after day. Then one day she discovered Aerith and her dying mother at the train station. The mother who has Aerith's soft facial features and brown bangs begged Elmira to take her somewhere safe. And then she dies right there on the spot. Elmira takes her in, projecting her loneliness for her missing husband onto the child. I guess that's me editorializing that moment there. You're projecting her projecting. <laughs> projecting. My wife and I have this funny thing where if we sense someone is projecting, we just shout projection. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we, we police each other's uh, pathologies. It's, it's, and it's funny to us because it's like we, like we all do it. It's not like you can't do it. We just like to, we have mutual humiliation <laughs> about it <laughs> anyways it sounds like objection you shouted like as if you're oh, hollering objection right. in a courtroom because it's like a counter argument it's a one word like nope sit down <laughs> yeah uh yeah Aerith's child model is the same model as the one in the vision in the train graveyard and similarly she's crying here too in this flashback and so hmm, here we are again um maybe walking back what we were saying in the train graveyard chapter about well what are we doing with these motifs of children being unhappy or feeling alone well here we are after taking in Aerith, Elmira says that she and her mom escaped some strange facility and how she wasn't sad because her mother had simply returned to the planet and then later says that her husband just died and that he also returned to the planet and then Elmira is able to confirm this when a killed in action letter comes in a few days later. Aerith is uh, in tune with what's going on. She says that somebody that loves you very much died and wanted to come see you, but couldn't make it before they had to return to the planet. And Elmira thought like, that's not true. She's just being, she's being her typical weird self. But uh, a few days later, she got the letter in the mail that her husband had been killed in action. And so it like confirms for her, Aerith's powers, uh, like you said, the the, I don't know that it's precogging in this case. This is com spirit communion, right? She's not necessarily seeing a future. She literally in that moment had a conversation with Elmira's husband live because he's a spirit. He can't. She says he came a long way to try and come and see you, but Elmira can't talk to spirits, so she's kind of relaying the message for him. Right. So that's happening. And that kind of confirms Aerith's specialness to Elmira. In my, from my opinion, like this as a kid, when I'm 11, I was bawling at this scene. Like it was, it was even in the OG, like presentation in the simplicity of it. Like there's a beauty and like a, a power to the beats of this little story. I was just like, I was, bawling my eyes out 
at this scene even when I was 11. And over the years of replaying the game or whatever, I kind of got over it, you know? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it is what it is. It's beautiful. It's moving. But I've seen it a dozen times. And then now, as a as an adult, I've got a spouse that is deployed overseas to a war zone who had a set date they were going to be home. And now that date is evaporated into the ether due to an ongoing war and just sitting here waiting thinking when are they going to be home and so this scene sent me like reeling all over again like i was 11 (laughs) because understanding and feeling that emotion of elmira's in a whole new way and i'm here at home caring for a three-year-old and elmira's picking up this i don't know what is air five or six at this point and and taking care of her in light of her missing spouse and everything different circumstances, obviously, but there were so many levels in which I like the scene started and I'm like, you know, okay. I I used to cry at this when I was a little kid, but it's gone. And all of a sudden I'm like, Oh God, (laughs) I'm getting destroyed all over again. Isn't it amazing how the same thing in a different context takes you to the same emotional place. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the same emotional place, but a similar emotional place. It feels real again. Like it feels like the first time with the added context. <laughs> and mm. like I'm it, and people say, oh, nostalgia or whatever. There are there are experiences you can have where they're powerful enough to take you back to that place in a in a more raw and real way mm-hmm. than just nostalgia or like echoes of what you once felt. Um I think you know this is a bigger discussion but like you know when people they get out of, let's say they get out of bad relationships and now they're in a good relationship or they're they're with somebody who's great and then all of a sudden they just have one experience that kind of reminds them of the past one or whatever you know people with commitment issues or trust issues or whatever you get put back in that place of it being real and raw again not just oh i'm remembering a thing that happened before it's like it's happening now again and it's like even if it isn't happening you feel it as if it were Mm -hmm. when it comes to final fantasy 7 remake there's a lot of discourse on we'll we'll have to address this when we finish it in full detail but i'll plant the seed here right now as there's a lot of discourse on people like, you know, the dusty ghosts and the precogging and the changes, the hashtag changes, hashtag no changes. <laughs> wow, classic, no changes. <laughs> There's a lot of people that say that this experience of remake is just completely wrong and invalid because it's ruining things of the original and you know, and we can address all that when we get to the conclusion here. But for me, I think there's like incredible value in how some of these scenes are expanded and recontextualized and like essentially redone. Like I find this, the expression of this in remake more powerful and more beautiful than the original, in my opinion, because like Mm. she drops a line of after she took in Aerith, the two of them were getting along great. And you get the scene of her like playing at the table with Elmira and them having a wonderful time and everything. And so to me, I'm seeing the love of a mother in a much deeper way than OG could have ever really communicated to me, you know? 
Yeah, yeah. In the living in the in the dining room there, and I think she's in Elmira's lap, and she's 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 being a happy little chatterbox, and and Elmira's listening to her. You, it does give you that that familial emotional pull. Mm-hmm. So it's like there's a sliding scale of like, well, you, you didn't need to change the narrative of the story or whatever. You didn't need to go to this length or whatever. But it's like, I'm sorry, but this is a change. They are expanding upon and growing and deepening these character expressions in a way of this is not the OG script. (laughs) It's, it's a re interpretation of the OG script, even in this case where events largely happen the same. And so for me, I, I'm not one of those people of like the original is ruined because something else exists. And in this case, I think this scene makes the original better because I now can see something between them that I would have had to have headcanoned or like inserted myself before. Now I'm just seeing it there on the screen. And so Mm -hmm. I think that for me is the value of remake, regardless of like if there's some little detail or plot element, you don't like that they did it this way. It's like for those people that it's like, well, that invalidates the whole game for me. I just can't get there. There's still so many moments of like, huge value for me in that I can overlook some of those gripes I have or like you know you've heard me wax on about how the the Shinra sabotage thing just rings hollow for me right mm-hmm. so what there's still so many amazing things to glean from what they did with this game if every scene was just a massive pile of shit <laughs> I could maybe see someone's point but the characters and the scenes are so good in some cases that it's like no, I'm I'm in. I'm invested. All right, rant over. Ran over. The flashback scene in remake skips ahead to a visit from Song. He shows up and explains how Shinra aims to apply Aerith's powers. He says, "Their knowledge and wisdom shall guide us to the promised land." And some think it's a myth, but Shinra takes the scriptures at face value. They were the original stewards of the planet whose boundless knowledge and wisdom shall guide us to the promised land. Some believe the promised land to be a myth, others an allegory of sorts. But we take the words of the scriptures at face value. I think it's funny that uh, Sung is, his model is not aged down like Aerith's is. He's the same age, although, um, and he'll look the same 12 or 14 years later. And this might be the first time in both games because the conversation is very similar in original, where we hear about the promised land. The promised land being some paradise that the ancients have talked about, and Shinra hearing someone who's responsible for the well-being of the planet, uh, which is code for the life stream, which is code for money and power, that they've got some sort of motherlode destination in mind, while Shinra's interested probably in what this promised land could be. I want to say, Nate, that when I hear uh, Sung talk about the scriptures, that sent me on a little white rabbit chase because I don't think that they mentioned the scriptures in original, but I'm interested in seeing if there's any other evidence in the Final Fantasy VII verse. Let's say that the scriptures are some sort of holy text scroll, a variation of the Bible that that ancients have written. And I've done some research, and I don't have a lot of additional information to support it, but I do have some interesting things to share about ancient literature. 
Uh, I've got three things. Um, according to the Final Fantasy VII Ultimania Omega, which I don't have, I have the material Ultimania, in early story drafts of the original game, the ancients were said to have written the Book of Genova. Capital B book, the Book of Genova. So that's presented to us like as if it were a Bible book, right? And that allegedly details the unknown workings of the human brain and, quote, the race who created materia. Now, it doesn't say the ancients, it says the race. And so maybe it's a mistranslation, but it kind of makes you wonder, well, if it wasn't the ancients, who created materia? Are ancients a race? Aren't they just a, aren't they a, a people? Aren't they a type of human? Anyways, lot to unpack there, but not a lot of information to go on. Uh, the second thing I learned was that in both game versions, we hear about a book called The Teachings of Planetary Life, which I think is written by researchers in the huge space of time between the collapse of ancient civilization and the advent of Shinra. I don't have much more to go on that. And then the third thing I learned is that there is an item that you can collect in the ancient capital in the OG Japanese international version, which is a book of ancient writings and there's a there's a picture that you can look at uh of the book it's open to a spread and it looks like a it's a tome it's a big ancient heavy book right and it displays um some ancients writings you can see some of the alphabet it's very pictographic so that's all i've got for scriptures you're right on the the mark there with the bible reference because book of genova the in hebrew god's name is Jehovah, mm. the letters I think are Yud He Vav He, so Yehovah essentially. You know, I I can't speak Hebrew, right? But uh, so Jehovah, Genova is kind of a little adaptation of that. And then the Promised Land is the land that, as the Jews left Egypt, I want to say they wander for 40 years searching for the place promised to them, the promised land, which would become some version of what we know to be Israel across the Jordan river is I think the way they describe it in the Bible. So I could be wrong on all of that, but I'm pulling my tertiary knowledge of the situation to say, this is kind of a, you know, they're, they're kind of equating the ancients to the, uh, the ancient Hebrew people in a certain way. Also, you mentioned the race who created materia. I think some point in OG, they say that materia contains the knowledge and wisdom of the ancients and the ability to commune with the planet. So when you're wielding a fire materia, you essentially, there is a ancient black mage who knew how to cast a fire spell and he's, imbued that stone with that knowledge is what mm. i gleaned from the old game but it also contradicts that in certain cases when like you can find materia in the wild that is like matches the element in which you would expect it to find it <laughs> so in my head a materia is just like coalesced fire energy inside so they don't really clear that up, but I do know at one point they say materia has the knowledge and wisdom of the ancients in it. It is interesting that Xenogears had to be created as a separate game and not be Final Fantasy VII, because that was sort of the plan in the very, very early stages and was uh, splintered off because it pulled too many biblical references. Meanwhile, you just revealed that there's a very similar comparison into the uh, to the Jewish god 
in both mm-hmm. of them. I suppose Final Fantasy VII encodes those references deeper into the lore, whereas Xenogears wears it a little more uh, brazenly on its sleeve. Even at 11 years old, I knew that if if I had ever audibly uttered that, okay, uh, yeah, I'm playing this video game and I have to fight Genova, I knew that my dad would walk right up to my bedroom, find said video game, and it would go straight in the trash if I <laughs> if I would ever say such a thing. So uh, I was aware of the connection and the, the, the referential nature, even at that age. Interesting. The day I bought Xenogears from Walmart or wherever, I was reading the back of the case to my mom as she's driving me home. And I read that the main character's name was Faye. And my mom was like, Faye? So is he, is he gay? Cause that's like, <laughs> that's a, that like no, no male is named Faye. Like F-A-E, Faye Dunaway. Yeah. She's thinking like F-A-E or F-A-Y or, or maybe linking like fairy. Cause mm-hmm. that's a slur, uh, in certain circles. It's kind of aged out by now, but. Uh, and and that was after the divorce, and you might recall that uh, my dad is gay, and and I think she was kind of responding to that as well, and uh, so I have a similar sort of uh, parental pushback about those sort of games as well. I made it quite a quite a long time before intervention happened. It was Mortal Kombat trilogy for the Nintendo sixty four. That was the one where my mom was finally like. I'm not getting you this game. <laughs> this looks bad. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, fair enough. All right. <laughs> I've got, I've gotten away with so <laughs> much. Like, I've gotten so much shit. Like, yeah, that's fine. You're an even keel kid, huh? It makes me wonder if Shinra, the company kind of has like a Xenogears esque villain structure of its factions within the company at play here, because you know how the, um, the, is it the Empire? What are they called? S- Solaris. Solaris. What are they? Are they? Are they an empire? Are they a? Yeah, yeah. Let's call it an empire. Yeah, yeah. So you know how there's multiple like dueling factions within the power structures of Solaris. Um, President Shinra himself, I see, is just like a ruthless capitalist. Hojo is a mad scientist. Professor Gast is like more of a benevolent scientist. He thinks like. By studying the ancients, he can help mankind because they know all sorts of cool shit about the planet. Um, and Rufus and the Turks are more like a, a ruthless dictator than capitalists, at least in how they conduct business. Because, um, like when we when we break it down, Rufus never really seems to have designs on like sup sucking up all the Maco for profit or anything. He's like consolidating military might under his rule he's uh he he grabs a big cannon and he moves that to midgar he's searching for materia that could potentially could potentially rain destruction down on people Mm -hmm. that seems to be his goals instead of like oh we're gonna go to the promised land and and make more uh, reactors and shit so it seems like there's all of these different interests within the company. And so when I see Sung kind of talk about like 
scriptures and religious beliefs and everything. I wonder, is this just a line for him or is he actually kind of like a true believer? Because we do learn in OG, he has a soft spot for Aerith. And I, I don't know if that goes into like a romantic feeling for him. I don't recall if they elaborate on that or not, but like he cares for her deeply. He knows about the temple of the ancients. He's the one that was able to find it first. And um, so and over time, they kind of toned down all the like evilness or badness of Shinra people as the Final Fantasy VII verse continues on. But I'm I'm kind of getting a feeling here that maybe Sung actually does care about like Aerith's purpose and what she could be capable of here, instead of just like, oh yeah, she's going to get us the big bucks. He seems genuine. He doesn't seem like conniving or ma- manipulating as he addresses. Elmira and Aerith in these scenes. Yeah. A little more matter of fact. In OG, he does slap Aerith in the face, though. So I don't know what to make of that, even though that's also the game where they tell you that he has a thing for her. So weird. Weird. Back to remake. Uh, We're still in conversation in the flashback with Sung. He says she had to come to Shinra willingly or otherwise it wouldn't work. And I don't know what it is and how does that make any goddamn sense. They don't say anything like that in an original. But that gets said. I wanted to answer your question. I sat looking at that sentence for like three minutes and I'm like, no, I've got nothing for you on that one. We're going to gloss over it just like the writers did. And the flashback is over. Baird goes, hmm, well, we should try to check up on the bar. You know, the destroyed, crushed bar. We're going to go check up on it. And it sounds like it could be code for something I'm not aware of, because it feels a little abrupt to me. I don't know. I guess we need to get out of there, and Barrett's making the call. Well, the bar does have a secret underground base, so maybe there are... You know, the plate comes down, the bar is crushed, but the underground area of the bar still intact so maybe there's weapons ammos communication equipment Mm -hmm. maybe people hiding out Mm -hmm. uh shelter because you know you had to go to the bar to rescue marlene and and who knows maybe the the downstairs area could have easily collapsed and been completely obliterated as well Mm -hmm. but it's like that could have been a great shelter for people if you took them below ground uh not that you'd ever be able to get to them but just something to think about so uh, that might be what he's leaning into. Maybe the bar has something there that they could make use of. I don't know. And then we split. Okay, so let's do the Elmira visit for original. It's largely the same. I guess I'm just going to point out the major differences. Barrett has a lot more patience in this scene. He doesn't even inquire about where Marlene is when the conversation starts. She says the Turks took Aerith from here. Uh confirming that she says she's the sole survivor of the ancients very matter of factly uh, or i'm projecting uh, and then uh, she says her husband went to the front to some faraway place called Wu Tai, some faraway place like she's not very aware of it which is pretty weird uh considering how relevant Wu Tai is in remake wouldn't you agree yeah tyler i don't know my wife is deployed to some <laughs> oh, weird no. faraway place called uh europe have you have you heard of Europe? Uh, <laughs> I I think that's where the Vikings live, right? That's where the Vikings are from. I've heard about it in stories. I'm not so sure it's real though. Nice, nice one. Um, the flashback is very similar. Remakes flashback is in sepia tone. OGs is not. We see Jesse and Biggs at the train <laughs> station, and the way they're interacting, it seems like they might have had a 
relationship back in the day. Now, again, Aerith's 22, and she's like six in this scene. So this is 15 years ago, right? That's, or it's, uh, how mm-hmm. many ever years we end up finding out it is. Thereabouts. How are Jesse and Biggs adults in this scene? That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, their models are the same, aren't they? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If it's children, a child doesn't get off the train and leap into someone's arm. I'm thinking this is either a goof or like them joking around or just the mm-hmm. Johnny's dad is everywhere model situation happening. Oh, yeah. And he's in that scene, too. It's almost too deliberate that it's the two of them. It's not like you reuse Big's model and then you use somebody else's like the the girl in the cool with the red hair with the cool leather jacket jumps into Biggs's arms right it's not that um so it's too deliberate so i'm guessing in og world they're in their 40s or something i don't know (laughs) it's hard to figure out what's going on there i don't know yeah right in the song conversation of original Throughout the Your Husband Died and Sung flashbacks, the cinematography of the scene is very, very stylish in OG. The lower level of Amira's house like races in and out of frame, disappearing from the top of the screen or the sides, and then sweeps back into frame, but with younger character models in their places. It happens um, over and over again as a, as a storytelling tool. It's pretty interesting. And even after the sung visit, when we cut back to the present, the camera is no longer pointing into the room from the front wall. It's now hung from the ceiling. So we see the tops of characters' heads instead of their full bodies. Pretty clever. What Sung has to say about the the Shinra's idea or plans for Aerith is pretty different. It's described that the ancients will lead us to a land of supreme happiness, and Aerith will be able to bring happiness to all those in the slums. That is why Shinra would like Aerith's cooperation. We've created such a wonderful economic system that anybody who can pull themselves up and work hard can make it in this world. If you've work hard enough and you believe you can be anything you want yay at the end of the flashback omira chews out barrett for abandoning marlene this chewing out doesn't happen in remake uh, barrett rebuffs her by saying he's fighting for her future and for the future of the planet but he also admits that this isn't a very satisfying answer he's becoming self-aware of his shitty dadness that we talked about last time mm-hmm. yeah he, he's juggling too many balls and the marlene ball is falling She's upstairs. Why don't you go see her? Uh, and so Barrett does at this point in the in OG. And then Tifa blames herself if you speak with her. Upstairs, Barrett's hugging Marlene. She says, Daddy, don't cry. Your whiskers hurt. And then uh, Barrett says he wants to help Cloud rescue Aerith. Um, Marlene says Aerith asked her a lot of questions about Cloud. And we don't get this in the remake. And she says, I bet she likes you, Cloud. And you can say, I don't know, or let's hope so. I say, I don't know. And she goes, Dummy! Yeah, are four-year-olds in tune with relationships and liking slash crushes at all? I don't I don't know. They get to a point where if you do try to pull the wool over them, they will absolutely blow your cover and tell everybody okay. else around you. Sure. Okay. You can rest in the upstairs bed in OG. Can't do that in Remake. And then as Cloud tries to leave, Tifa says she also wants to help rescue Aerith. Cloud says, we are going right into the Shinra headquarters, so you got to be prepared for the worst. Tifa says she knows, and she feels she needs to push herself to the limit. 
Barrett joins and says, can you watch Marlene for a little bit longer? Which is the entire game. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit longer for the entire game. That's kind of a funny thought. It's like, yeah, we could go to the Northern Cave, but I've really <laughs> got to breed like seven generations of chocobos first. You don't think you could... <laughs> is now a good time to ha to take Marlene back? No, no, no. I'm only at the green one. Well, I, I kind of have this <laughs> thought in my head of like Barrett. They got the airship. They've got the, the Costa del Sol property purchase and everything. And Barrett like shows up in calm at Elmira's new place. And it's like, hey, I think we're, we're set up now. We can take Marlene back. And Elmira actually being a good mom and like caring for a child and seeing all of the trauma that this little girl has been through in her life mm -hmm. of everything. She's like, you know what? I, I think I can watch her a little bit longer if you have other things you need to do <laughs> because like I, I just see almost like Marlene's like a second chance at the Aerith situation for her but also mm. like no I don't think you're ready to look after this person yet Barrett uh, we brainstorm how to get into the Shinra building trains don't go up there so we'll have to find some other way and so Tifa says, let's go to Wall Market. We might be able to find something there. And that's where the equivalent content of this chapter ends for original. Yes. And in classic old school RPG fashion, you know, oh, let's let's go there. We might find something means the exact one thing you absolutely need is just around the corner. <laughs> uh, it, we'll cover it when we get there. We're going to head back to the uh, Sector 7 bar, or what's left of it. Our plan is to take the underground passage through the park, the one that Aerith told Cloud about a handful of chapters ago. The lovely song Hollow Skies is playing again in the Sector 5 slums. To get back to where we need to go, the Moogle Park, place where we're going to duck under the wreckage to get back into Sector 7, as Aerith once alluded to, some foreshadowing there, but... To get there, we're going to retraverse the Collapse Expressway from prior chapters, this time with a party of, obviously, Cloud, Tifa, Barrett, instead of Cloud and Aerith. Along the way, I there's nothing too eventful of it, just more battles traversing the same things. We don't have to move the hands and pick up um, containers anymore. All of the ladders have been dropped, so no real puzzle elements to deal with here. But I do fail to scan a grungy bandit not recognizing his additional chunkiness apart from the other bandits. Uh, I thought he was just a regular ass bandit. But as we are whacking away at him, Baird asked, uh, and other bandits, Baird asked Cloud if he knows these guys because they're like, it's you, get him, ah! And, uh, but Cloud just says, shut up, basically. Like, I, I don't want, I don't want to talk about it. Because uh -huh. if you remember, Baird and Tifa have not been here before. So, uh, and we've had multiple run-ins with these guys as Cloud and Aerith. Finally, we get to the park and it's populated by a bunch of Sector 7 slums refugees, including Weimer, the neighborhood watch quest giver. There are some shops and, you know, the obligatory blue bench with the vending machine. And, uh, our plan is to go down the Moogle hole because recall that that service tunnel that connects the playground to Sector 7 slums is inside the, the Moogle slide structure. And so we go down, uh, there are refugees living down here. It's not a very large tunnel. I, I kind of thought it would be like a, 
my like a micro dungeon or anything but no it's pretty straightforward and uh there are a couple npcs living down here and you hear the ambient conversation as you go by and that's kind of it for that service tunnel not as eventful as i thought it would be i thought it would be something like a like another collapsed expressway sort of experience but no we're in and out in about a minute well you have to remember Aerith said that she used this all by her lonesome when she needed to when the gate to sector seven was closed so take that what you will sure when we get to the sector seven slums the whole place is destroyed and on fire electric electrical poles are toppled over and giving off sparks it is chaos and dangerous the uh seventh heaven bar is confirmed destroyed but our attention quickly swaps to that of a, a cat a house cat a stupid looking cat not a cartoon cat <laughs> a regular cat I don't recognize this cat as Wedge's cat, but the characters do, and we decide to follow it. And this is a little silly to me because we're ripped away from the plan to chase a cat because we think that chasing the cat is going to bring us to Wedge. And that logic doesn't link up for me as the player, but it does for them such that they are chasing the shit out of this. There's a lot of cat symbolism in this game of like... Cat cats having uh, don't like it. superior knowledge to humans. Uh, we've discussed it before, yeah. but Wedge has proven that he can take some punishment. He's gotten the the bullet to the ass, the dog bite, the explosions and such, falling from the the tower, verbal beatings from Cloud and Jesse. Yes, so maybe he's communed with the cats so much that they've granted him additional lives. And that's why, that's why he survived this time. He's got cat, cat energy, (laughs) cat magic. (laughs) Oh my God. What I will say about sector seven is it is entirely too intact for me to believe that a plate dropped on I agree with you, yes. We shouldn't even be able to get in there. The top of that service tunnel should be like smashed shut underneath hundreds of tons of concrete and rebar and entire smashed up buildings. Yeah, and they find the sign of the bar and it's like, no, this place would be completely obliterated in every sense of the word and we know that because there's another section of the game that is a fallen plate disaster and it does look like that it is the only reason you can traverse it is because they created lore in the game where a cleanup crew came in and created a traversable path through the endless piles of garbage so the fact that sector 7 exists in some version of its former state I don't buy it Mm-hmm. I agree with you. We chase the stupid cat to Wedge's place, and um, here we see a tunnel is bored through the earth under his house. And again, I don't get why we're joining these two thoughts together, but maybe Wedge is down there. So we go down into the tunnel, and we find a huge secret Shinra facility. The platform we're on gives way as we're navigating this first room and all three of us fall down and become separated from one another. This is a brand new remake only dungeon that we're going to get into. Tyler, do you know what deep ground is? Nate is Dirge of Cerebrus content canon. It absolutely is now. It is <laughs> good answer. This this is 100% and I 
I haven't played the the Yuffie shit yet, but through through various trailers promoting the game and everything, I know that th- this is seeding the DLC content a little bit here, and that the DLC content one hundred percent absolutely is dirge adjacent, right? It it, it pull it, it's not just like a, a nice little nod or whatever it it pulls dirge straight out of its coffin and says, look at me. Thanks for listening, everybody. This episode has been a production of Gunblade Guys. That's us, Tyler and Nate. Think about liking us, subscribing to us, five-starring us, writing a review about us, and telling a fellow game liker about us, too. If you love this show, or just kind of like this show, someone you know probably would just kind of like this show or love this show too. Join the conversation with fellow fans of the show on Discord, which you can find a link for on our podcast description. If you feel like tipping us, there's a link to do so in that paragraph as well. Catch us on Twitch and YouTube under the name Gunblade Guys. And if you're thinking about emailing us at gunbladeguys at gmail.com, think again. That's it for now. We're going to plumb the depths of this surprise lab facility next time. We'll see you then. Catch you later. Tyler and Nate out. Take a sip here. Take a shit. What? Take a sip. Take a shit. Yeah, I don't need a shit. I already shit. I know. Me too. <laughs> you don't know I took a shit. We ha- suppose I took. We had our shit period outlined via text. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> Got the game. This is a bad start. Okay. You know, I I did a TV interview for a station that does some of our tours that like we partner with and and I get really nervous for those. Mm-hmm. Because it's not it's not like podcasting where I get to sit and like edit for six or eight hours. It's like you you are live and you go. Even if it's pre recorded, they only do one take, you know. Right. I, I suppose if you totally bomb it, then you do another. But um, I don't feel like I'm particularly good at those these TV interviews, and I sure. I can't watch them afterwards. I don't feel like I can cringe through that. But but this one was my best one. So nice. I'm uh, I'm uh, exposing myself to it, and I'm getting over it. Did you say, uh, be sure to check out Gunblade, guys, and the Hero of the Thousand Potions podcast? <laughs> no, no. See, I'm the guest, so they're the host, so they they steer the conversation away when they feel like they're I'm yammering too long. Or, sure. Or, they, or it's time to get on to the how to sign up part, which they do, which I don't. I'm the, I describe the tour for them. I was once, okay. I was once on the Eau Claire News promoting the, um, true true friend false friend mr sugar book it's a healthy children's it's a children's book about healthy eating and don't eat sugar and all that shit so um i I was on the news too 
help a local author promote that because I did all of the art in the book. And who's the author? Oh yeah, I've I've heard of her. Yeah. Um. Well, and also you know like sh- she technically was the writer, but it she's the writer in as much as like she outlined the vague concept for thirty pages of the book, and not only was I the like artist, but kind of the scenario creator too because there was no like instruction on how to marry her vague idea of this page should have this with well what do i show people doing how did they get there what are they like like inter- how how are they interacting with this concept of yours so there's there's a lot of like gray area where you actually you have to write as well being the artist because hmm. the, it wasn't like she should be sitting at a table and he's here and there and then this whatever it's like it, it was this idea of like Mr. Sugar shows up with a donut, you know, and I'm like, uh, what room? What, how, how are they, you know, how does the composition work? Like when is this scene taking place during their interactions? And, you know, so anyway, or, or like it wasn't even that it was like sugary treats. Well, it's like, what kind of sugary treats would you like me to use? So I had like a box of sprinkled donuts and it's like, well, that I'm writing that then because, that isn't being dictated to me on how that all works. And so strange I, that she wouldn't provide a comprehensive vision. Uh, you know, um, she is a writer and she, she creates, me. yeah, she creates like a lot of local plays and stuff and she does a lot of writing, but this was actually pretty free form. And so there was this, um, the, the concept of the book was this thing called true friend, false friend, where like, are these things in your life really serving you? Like, like, yay, it's a, it's mm. a big tasty donut. It's wonderful. Yay. Like, and all the commercials and everything is celebrating it, but it's like, is this good for you? You know, the way it's, the way it's being sold to you, is it actually that wonderful for your life? And so the whole scenario of the book had like no basis. So I invented, I essentially invented this game. It's kind of like the, was that game like guess who where you have to like pick attributes about things to about people to like flick down the faces and whatever i kind of made this like true friend false friend rip off of that of like all of these wonderful things in your life that are actually terrible like you you kind of use your judgment call to flick down the like attributes you know in this game they were playing and I had mm-hmm. to I had to make that all up. Like this is this game, this board game children are playing. Like, how do the rules of this game even function or or work? Like I'm designing a board game just to have a functional item within my storybook world that makes some sort of sense that they would be interacting with this to ask just to get to the point where the characters can ask this question of each other of like, is this man bringing us all of these treats really looking out for us really caring for us you know um so it, it, it like the writing goes on that level of like well if you don't give that to me or dictate that to me like i've got nothing the scene makes zero sense so it's like there were multiple layers in which you have to be creative as an artist that go beyond like put the image on the page you know Anyway, so uh, that's that's why I was part of the interview. I, I saw myself as like a creative director in several ways. And I'm a whiny crybaby on YouTube. 
I don't know. Does that not work for you? <laughs> trying not to laugh. Oh. <laughs> I'm trying to do it dry, like, naturally instead of editing it, but I couldn't do it. Okay. I played it for about five hours a day for three hours straight. Oh, excuse me. I'm going to say that again. <laughs> she mentioned... Nate, Nate, can I interrupt you? Sure. Um, you're, you're getting robotic. I'm getting robotic? You're, you're, you're cutting out a little and sounding kind of... Okay. Cybernetic. Well, that would be an internet thing. Um... I can definitely check here. Let's turn my monitor on. See how I sound. Mic check. One, two. You sound much better all of a sudden. <laughs> okay, so I feel like I feel like that's a Discord thing and that the audio is gonna be fine. Okay. On OBS. I'm sorry to interrupt then. No, you're good. Let's get back to that's, it. That's it's important. I legitimately thought that like Jet Moto, when you win the races, and this goes for Cruising USA as well, but when you win the races, you get to see pictures of hot girls, mm -hmm. right? And that was like I straight up thought that if my parents ever saw that, they would basically treat it like like you would consider pornography today, right? Like I thought if they ever see this image on my screen i'm in the deepest shit of all time so i was very like you mash that button after you win the race if they were home if they weren't home oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> let's get back to just it. kidding back to yeah 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 <laughs> That's and keep, keep, him, keep him keep in mind i'm like eight or wait jet moto i was probably 11 at that point too that came out i think cruising usa i was younger but i was like 96 but so mm -hmm. i'm a kid i don't i don't even know what to do with this knowledge i just i just like it